For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. I've got a provocation for you this week. Why are animals so often left out of the conversation on sustainable and ethical fashion? We always talk about people and planet. I'm about to go to Fiji tonight, actually, to teach a workshop at Fiji Fashion Week. And I'm really excited. And I was doing the slides for it. And I wrote, as usual, on them, people and planet. And then I'm talking about the sustainable development goals and all of this stuff. But why? I do that all the time. But why don't we add animals to that? Yes, we might mention biodiversity. But this idea that people and planet are all that matters and that the others are less important, especially when you consider that so many of fashion's materials are derived from animals. I think that's a problem. My guest this week wants to change it. She also, by the way, wants us to rethink the idea of animals as commodities. They are, she says, someone, not something. Now, if you listened to last week's episode with Robin Lawley, that was also about veganism. It's beautiful. Do listen to that interview and go back and check it out if you haven't already. But it's a very personal story about how and why Robin moved into a vegan living. I wanted this week to expand that and look at the context. What are the big issues powering this definite consumer shift we're seeing to cruelty-free and vegan? My guest today is Emma Harkinson founder of something called Collective Fashion Justice. It's an organisation that puts animals as well as people and planet at the heart of sustainability and fashion. She describes herself as an activist passionate about anti-speciesism, also autonomy and collective liberation. Emma is the author of a book called How Veganism Can Save Us, it's very good. So I would encourage you to read it if you're interested in this space. And she's actually got another one coming out later this year. I think it's called Total Ethics in Fashion. And as if that wasn't enough, she was one of the producers of and also appears in the documentary Slay, which came out last year. I just found Emma so impressive, not just for what she's achieved. She's still in her early 20s. It's because of how well researched she is. She's a really good person to interview because she's got a scientific or persuasive philosophical answer for everything. And even though this is such an emotional topic and Emma's obviously passionate about it, she's able to keep that really laser focus when making her case and also bring in so many other references to back it up as well. I asked her about this after we'd finished recording and she said her dad drummed it into her as a kid that if she wanted to win an argument, she had to do her homework and get her facts straight. There's obviously so much to unpack in this whole topic of vegan fashion. But in this interview, we zero in on leather. By the time it's been turned into a bag, a pair of shoes, a belt or a jacket, we tend to forget that leather is skin, says Emma. Thanks to long supply chains, the power of the global leather industry and big luxury brands, plus the language that is used to market fancy handbag materials, most of us never think too much about how leather is produced. As with supermarket meat and dairy products, we're totally disassociated from its origins. Emma believes cruelty should never be in style. She'd like us to check our morals and ask ourselves how comfortable we really are treating animals as a commodity. But that aside, the way leather is produced globally today is a climate nightmare, she says, while its supply chains conceal as much social injustice as cut and sew for the garment industry. It just gets less attention. 
While leather has been used in fashion for millennia, says Emma, its production today is an ethical and environmental crisis. Now, veganism and animal agriculture is divisive. It is emotional. And I'm sure some of you will have different ideas to Emma's. And please do keep listening because we've got some more interviews coming up from different perspectives on this topic, including one on regenerative agriculture. But this episode is really worth a listen. I look forward to hearing what you make of it. And don't forget to check the show notes for all the links. You should get Emma's book. We've got links to buy the book on the show notes. There's also a link to watch the documentary Slay for free on there and to find Collective Fashion Justice on Instagram, etc. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter, as you know, at Mrs. Press. But now let's hear from Emma Harkinson, founder of Collective Fashion Justice. Welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Emma Harkinson. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Claire. I'm very grateful that you're taking the time to talk to us, especially on a weekend. It's actually a Sunday. So thank you. It's a great Sunday morning for me. I'm going to ask you to start in a slightly stagey way, because I think it would be good to give some context around what we're talking about here, Mm. veganism in fashion. But in the introduction to your book, How Veganism Can Save Us, Survive the Modern World, which was published by Hardy Grant last year, there is a definition Yes. That actually comes from 1944 from the Vegan Society. And I was like, oh, it's the OG definition of veganism. <laughs> the Vegan Society was founded in that year, 1944. Emma, do us a favor and read us that definition, if you will. Yes. So veganism's older than that, but this is like when we decided to define it. So veganism is a philosophy and way of life which seeks to exclude as far as is possible and practical all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing or any other purpose and by extension promotes the development and use of animal-free alternatives for the benefit of humans, animals and the environment. In dietary terms, it denotes the practice of dispensing with all products derived wholly or partly from animals. Thank you. You said veganism as a concept is much older than that. Yes. Where does it go back to? I mean, obviously there've been vegetarian diets for, should we say millennia? I don't know. I mean, is it religious? Is it by choice? Tell us a bit about the history of it. From my research, the real roots of veganism are in ancient India, like really thousands and thousands of years ago and it relates to the concept of ahimsa which is about non-violence to all beings so that emperor ashoka put in law that would protect animals so long ago and then emperor tenmu in japan also banned animal eating in like 670 something like it's been happening for a long time not so much in western countries so this definition is when it started gaining attention in the Western world. But even in like the Romantic era, Pythagoras, there are lots of big thinkers that were talking about animals as individuals rather than foods or commodities. It's so interesting. Tell me why you're personally a vegan. So I first connected with the idea of animals as individuals rather than commodities. I don't know. I always thought of myself as an animal lover, but my actions didn't necessarily align with that. But when I was living with my extended family in Sweden, I was offered to eat a moose and I had, yeah. And I had eaten lambs all the time in Australia. I'd eaten pigs all the time in Australia, but having a moose put in front of me, I was like, Oh, I don't really like that. And I decided that 
I couldn't have such an arbitrary distinction between, oh, this animal is not food and this animal is. So rather than just ignoring that I thought that that was not particularly logically sound, I decided I wouldn't eat any animals. And Mm. then as I learned more, I learned about fashion and animals and I just went from there. What did you have for dinner last night? Oh God, what did I have for dinner last night? Um, oh, I had chakwe tao from my favourite takeaway place. It's like a noodly, flat noodle, delicious stir fry thing. When you said that about the moose, it reminded me of being about 14 and we were in France. I grew up in the UK and I was on holiday with my family and I had a friend there and we were allowed to go and have lunch on our own. Mm-hmm. And we went to the same cafe every day for a week and flirted with all the hot boys and had a burger. Yeah. And on the last day, I read, as I had read every day, the menu item that we kept ordering. And it was, I want to say Cheval. Is that right? Should we Google it? What is that? Cheval was horse and I was absolutely horrified. And mm-hmm. yeah, if it, and I remember being, I was distraught. I could still remember it. I mean, just mm-hmm. like, oh my God, I would never choose to eat a horse. To me, that was just f- absolutely shocking. But I wouldn't have, have, I had no qualms about eating a cow. So there mm-hmm. is this, there is something to do with the story that we tell ourselves about what is, it's almost like we're creating this false hierarchy of what's okay and what's not okay or what's, it's all cruel. So mm-hmm. at what point do we decide you couldn't deal with a moose, I couldn't deal with a horse? It's sort of, like you said, it's arbitrary. Well, and they're not just stories we're telling ourselves. It's very much very strong cultural conditioning. You know, we're told constantly that eating animals, wearing animals, using animals is natural, it's normal, it's necessary. But none of those things are actually true. And so I think it's all about shifting that mindset. And it's why someone like Angela Davis, who I feel like I quote constantly, she refers to veganism as a part of a revolutionary perspective Like if we're talking about collective liberation for everyone being the ultimate goal and we're saying that race or sexism or, you know, any of these distinctions that we make between individuals and how we try to create hierarchy between us, species is one of those kind of arbitrary boundaries as well. In your book, you define the term speciesism. I've got to say I'd never heard of it. Mm. So speciesism is an ism like any other. It's a form of discrimination and it is based on species. So it's the reason that we make arbitrary justifications between who we consider a friend, like a dog, someone who's worthy of protection, someone who should be exterminated, someone we see as food, someone we see as a shoe. Oh God, this stuff is quite linked to where we decide to put the pin in the map of our morality. Mm -hmm. There isn't like a black and white answer because there's so much disagreement and it's so emotional. Mm. And I think actually why there's so much disagreement and why it's so emotional is because people convict themselves in these conversations because there is a part of them kind of hiding away that goes, actually, I do feel really uncomfortable with this. I may not necessarily be ready to grapple with what that means. And that comes out as discomfort. And it was the same for me at a certain point. Like even when I decided I actually couldn't work as a model anymore because there was simply no way to make money and align with the values of no animals, living wages, like it was just impossible. But that's a tough call to just go, I can't do this anymore. 
Okay. You are, among other things, founder of something called Collective Fashion Justice. It's an organization that puts animals as well as people and planet at the heart of an ethical fashion industry. What does it seek to do and how? So Collective Fashion Justice exists to create what I call a total ethics fashion system. And so that is one that puts people, our fellow animals and the planet before profit. I say our fellow because I think it's worth noting that people are just one of many, many magnificent species here. But we basically want our view of responsible fashion to be more holistic and to be collective. We hear about like sustainable fashion, ethical fashion, conscious fashion, cruelty-free fashion. There are so many words, but a lot of them fail to kind of address everything. We see bags that are labelled as ethical, but they're made of cow skin, but the ethical part is referring to the fair wages being paid, which is great. And then we see a bag that's vegan and so it's labelled as cruelty-free, but maybe the person that made it was exploited. And then there's that, you know, planetary aspect as well. So we're just trying to make it that the ultimate goal for fashion is everyone, literally everyone, and the planet is always considered first. Before we press record, I was asking you if there are others like you, meaning are there other organisations that really put the focus on these things holistically? I haven't really come across other spokespeople in the fashion industry that are doing the kind of broad and linked work that you're doing. And you were humbly and kindly saying, well, probably, I'm not sure, there's me. But actually, <laughs> let's just, I think it's interesting. You're here in Australia. You're in your, how old, in your 20s? Yeah, 23. 23? Yeah. So you're, you're really young, actually. And you've produced this extraordinary far-reaching organization presumably from your back of your house (laughs) and now you're doing you said that you've been in meetings for example uh with new york senators talking about an upcoming potential fur bill you're doing all this work globally you're supporting films we're going to talk about it in a minute i feel like you're quite amazing emma (laughs) hackinson thank you um that's very nice but wasn't really a question was it (laughs) no but it kind of was why you now and why Mm. hasn't there been as much focus on these conversations until lately I think that you know I think I came into this at a good time that meant I was able to build bridges between things that are normally not connected because so many other people have done other work but I think that I think that it's what we're realizing now the same way that we're starting to go we actually can't have sustainable fashion without talking about the people who make our clothes I'm just kind of again broadening that circle of compassion and saying well actually if we're saying that individuals lives is a critical part of sustainability I'm just saying well individuals can't be bound by the human All right, let's just get this out of the way. For context, what are some of the ways that the fashion industry uses animals? Leather is obvious. What else? So fur is obviously the big one that everyone knows about. There's also skins that we consider exotic, like from reptiles, kangaroos. There's feathers from ostriches, feathers from birds like ducks. There's cashmere and wool from sheep and goats and other animals. There's all sorts of ways that animals are exploited for materials in fashion. And then there's also you know, biodiversity impacts of fashion and that then comes into how wildlife and those animals impacted as well. Absolutely. What about silk though? I I do know that we talk about vegan silk, but maybe listeners are like, but that doesn't come from an animal. Yeah. So I think that silk can be forgotten as animal derived in the same way that 
certain animals themselves can almost be forgotten as animals. So silk is made from silkworms that are still in their cocoons almost all of the time. So in that sense, it's not vegan because we're talking about the exclusion of animals from those supply chains. Actually, we'll share a picture. If ever you have seen a close-up shot photograph of the Bombyx mori, the silkworm moth. They're quite cute. My God, they are like (laughs) fluffy. They are so fluffy and charismatic. It's absurd. They're really cute. Again, that sounds like a silly question or a silly point to make, but I don't think it is. I remember writing about this years ago. We don't want to eat or kill the cute thing. Mm. Some part of us that will or is more likely to allow the destruction of or the killing of the not cute thing. You might smash a spider if you're scared of it, but if you saw this little moth, you wouldn't want to kill him. Look at how I anthropomorphized him as well. What is that about? We're back to speciesism, aren't we, that we have these arbitrary ideas about what is killable. Mm, I think it's also a lot of it in this hierarchy we've made we have humans at the top and other animals below. And really, if we talk about humans at the top, we have white cis men at the top. And a lot of that comes into, there's this really great academic and writer called Christopher Sebastian, and he's a black writer. And he talks about how the idea of human is like a political creation that was made by white cis men so that they could deem others subhuman. So women are like a little bit less human. White people are the most human. So it kind of plays into that. So if an animal seems further from humanity, we're more likely to subjugate them and treat them cruelly. And I brought that up, and thank you for bringing such depth to it, but I brought that up because I think, and I've I've probably said this too, when it comes coming back to silk, that people go, oh, it's just a worm. Yeah. You know, it's not the same as a insert, you know, mammal of choice here. Yeah, and I think that, you know, often people say that and are still also wearing leather, which is the skin of a mammal. So I think we've got all sorts of issues to unpack. But a huge one is just ultimately the thing that should be the boundary between should someone be killed, should someone be exploited, is are they sentient? Do they have capacity for pain or not? I want to come to that in a moment, but I've just been watching the documentary Slay. It's written and directed by Rebecca Capelli. Mm-hmm. You're in it. You helped research it. And Collective Fashion Justice is the education partner in the film. It's also, it features actually our friend Bandana Tiwari. Hello, Bandana. Yes. <laughs> and Samata Pattinson. You can watch it for free on Water Bear and we'll share a link. There's something the filmmaker says that really struck me. She says... She's surrounded by leather shoes and bags and she's got like all her wardrobe out on the bed and she's looking at all these old clothes. And then she says, how did this happen? I'm an animal lover wearing animals. Wearing fur, leather or wool is so ingrained in our culture, she says, that we somehow forget that it comes from an animal. Mm. I think everyone is born understanding our fellow animals better and then culturally we kind of unlearn that. And it's the same for me, like as well as the kind of moose experience on the food side. Even after I was vegan and I wasn't buying new leather, I still hadn't necessarily really got that leather was skin. And it wasn't until I rescued a cow called Elira and I was feeding her wheat bix. Cows love wheat bix. And one of them fell on my shoe. And my shoe was my vintage Doc Martens. So they were leather. 
and she licked the boot and I just felt sick and I realised that this cow who I loved so much I'd put all this effort into saving from being killed just licked the skin of another dead cow that I had just been merrily wearing. And I think that just so put into perspective how little we are connected with what we're actually putting onto our bodies. Okay, Emma, how do you rescue a cow? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some ways are illegal, some ways illegal. There's all sorts of ways to do it, but there are animals that need homes all the time. In the wool industry, you know, there's 15 million lambs that die every winter lambing season in Australia from exposure to the cold, starvation, mismanagement, and so a lot of them are just literally left to die in paddocks. So a very easy way to rescue a lamb is to just go into one of those paddocks and take an orphan who's going to die otherwise. There's all kinds of ways that animals are rescued. Some might say that that's stealing livestock from a farmer. Yes, absolutely they would. And that's because animals are defined as things and property under law. But if you view an animal as an individual you would not believe that you can be stealing. Like the term livestock is literally just stock that is living. If you see someone that is suffering and dying, do you go, I'll just leave that there because that's someone's property or do you feel a responsibility to help them? Well, Emma, this is a part where you might start to lose people because there is a perception historically of, if you think about Peter or... uh, Would you accept that historically the idea of standing up for animal rights has been seen as maybe kind of a fringe thing and maybe too radical and it might put some people off? I think absolutely in the same way that a lot of social justice movements have been viewed that way. I think that we have to be careful with how we engage with other people. If we're asking for respect for all individuals and species, that should include other people. But I think that there is an element that really is just kind of a fear of dramatic change. Like I don't think something being referred to as radical is a bad thing when our current system is really broken. But, yeah, no, I accept that there are a lot of views that I'm trying to change and to make it seem like, you know, this is just a critical part of the discussion. It also feels to me like we're really changing. I know that it's not easy to characterize a generation and say, oh, everyone, you know, Gen Z is going to do everything differently. But there is a shifting in values. You can see it in, for example, attitudes to gender binaries. You can see it in Mm. things like veganism. These are long-term trends where future generations will shift the dial on it. I'm sure it's happening. What do you think? I think it is. I think that... Martin Luther King said something like that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I really like to think that that's true. I think you have to think it's true or you want to, you know, become a small heap on the ground. (laughs) Um, But I do. I do think it's true. You note that cows are sentient. I want to talk about this. I, I should just say that I absolutely convinced and don't know how you could not be that all animals are sentient beings. If you've ever spent any time with an animal, you know that they're not just, we know they're intelligent, that they're emotional, they feel pain, they feel fear. My cat can have a whole conversation in a whole whole (laughs) language. But I think I'm not being glib about that. You can see, you can see by looking in an animal's eyes that they feel and they think. Yeah. But talk to me about the scientific evidence for sentience and the process or evolution of this idea of accepting animal sentience. Yeah. So if you look really far back in history, 
people have not always thought of animals as sentient. Descartes thought that animals were basically flesh automatons. They just looked like they were living. Yeah, he apparently... He's the origin of a lot of shit, isn't he? (laughs) He apparently, like, nailed his wife's dog to a chopping board and cut him up for science. But that's kind of how we were thinking about animals. And I think at some point we'll look at how we treat animals now and also realise, wow, what were we doing? And part of that is because we didn't have the kind of scientific understanding of sentience that we do now. So in 2012, which really was very late, the Cambridge Declaration on Consciousness was born and all these different scientists from all kinds of fields came together and basically just recognised that humans are not unique in possessing what is required for sentience, for consciousness, the capacity to feel and think. And they also noted that you didn't have to have a neocortex in order to feel sentience, to be sentient. So it was a really, like scientifically, it was a huge thing that happened in 2012. So let's take it as a given that animals feel pain and emotion. There's some absolutely horrible footage of foxes in tiny cages in this documentary, Slay. Mm-hmm. And there's also skins for sale in these Chinese markets that have clearly come from endangered and threatened species. I feel like fur is a really easy one to argue is unconscionable. Mm-hmm. And I'm not the only one to say that because in recent years we've got quite a lot of headway from... I want to say mainstream society, but just the majority of people are starting to go, gross, fur is not something we want to to use or wear. And then in recent years, you've seen a lot of big fashion brands swear off it. So Gucci, Chanel, Versace, Armani, Prada, they've all banned it. Mm-hmm. On your website, you write, certainly most people don't tend to drape foxes around their necks anymore, but a parka with a far less identifiable animal trim made of a coyote's fur is commonplace. A fluffy white fur bobble on a key ring or a beanie can be bought cheaply. We're still using it. Yeah, the fur industry is aware that people are not comfortable with what is happening to produce fur anymore. And so it is relying now on subtlety and of people not necessarily realising that. There are brands like Fendi that have a history as a fur area that are always going to produce fur, but really the vast majority of luxury brands, the vast majority, like, we're moving on. And yet there are still so many millions of animals in cages in the fur industry. And this is why I think legislation is so important to protect people from actually not being able to make decisions that they want to make that align with their values. Even here in Australia, we tested a bunch of products that were sold at a market. Some of them were not labelled at all. Some of them were labelled as faux. Some of them were labelled as one species, and we actually found domestic cat fur, we found all kinds of animals, and it's a huge problem. We are relying on people not understanding how their clothes are made in so many senses to be able to make profit. I feel like we should move on to leather because because I think there are so few listeners, I'm sure at least, who are even thinking about, should I wear some fur? You're not <laughs> going to wear some fur, fur's finished. <laughs> I mean, you just said it's still being sold and we know that it is, but I will just say that I spoke about this on the BBC News last year, so I remember the stats. The industry is worth 40-odd billion when I wrote the book Wardrobe Crisis, which was 2015, 16. It's Mm -hmm. now worth 20. So it's, okay, that's still a lot of money, but it is halving. It is, I think, all that stuff around closing the mink farms over COVID in Denmark. But maybe that industry is on its knees, let's hope so. But the leather industry 
is not. By contrast, is growing. CFJ put out a report in 2023 together with Four Paws about leather's impact on animals. Can we talk about this idea that leather is a byproduct of the meat industry, that it would go to waste if we didn't use the skins? I feel like I hear that always. Yeah. So we unpack this at the start of each of our reports in that series. We have one on people and planetary impacts of leather too. If you look on a really micro scale and you look at like an individual slaughterhouse, individual slaughterhouses report multi-million dollar losses if skins are not selling. Do they? Yeah, there's like even Meat and Livestock Australia reporting where that's true and where it's even acknowledged that it is potentially due to the rise of alternatives to leather. You know, if you look at something like the Leather and Hide Council of America, they have in their own reporting that if they could make leather more popular and more profitable, they would then raise more cattle so that they could keep up with that demand. So this notion that leather is some kind of like waste reduction initiative is simply not true. There is a lot of money involved in the process of transforming a skin into a tanned hide that is able to be worn. That money is not going to be invested unless money is coming out of it. And while it's true that leather is generally not the primary product, it's a huge amount. In terms of the value. So like if you looked at the the value of a carcass. Yes. It would be 10% or something. I've read that somewhere. I don't know. It can really vary. It can really vary. It also is like if you're looking at the dairy industry and you're looking at the bobby calves, the males that are killed, those skins are particularly soft. And so even the RSPCA talks about how they're like almost the most valuable part of that animal. So it really, it changes. But regardless, it's always significant. And at the very least, even if you don't think that it's a huge amount of money, it's still a multi-billion dollar industry And you can see it as at least subsidizing meat production. If we choose to divest from the production of leather, we're still, we're divesting from slaughterhouses and from the production of cattle for meat and for every other commodified purpose. Do you want to just touch on this way that we use language? It was something in your book I found really interesting. I mean, I guess, because I'm a writer, I like to think about words, but Mm. you were just pointing out that we use this soft language as marketing speak that allows us to separate ourselves from the facts of leather being a skin. Yeah, I think that it's one of the very effective tools in the arsenal of an industry that profits from people not being aware of how things are done. I think if someone looked at a leather supply chain, they saw a cattle farm, they saw the degradation of the land that was caused by cattle. If you could literally see the methane emissions, if you could see a cow's horns being burnt off without any pain relief, if you could look inside a slaughterhouse, if you could look inside a tannery, we wouldn't then see as many people buying leather as they do. So you have to use marketing and clever use of language to kind of ensure people don't consider it further. Do you want to summarise the issues with leather apart from cruelty? Yes. So if you look beyond animals, I think the major impacts, because there are so many, I can't touch on them all. The first is the climate impact. We know that methane is something like 84 times more potent than carbon. We have to address both of them if we're going to hit IPCC climate targets. If you look at leather panel data, cow skin leather is seven times more impactful than even synthetics, which are also absolutely not a solution, but just to understand that comparison. There's also 
land inefficiency, even if deforestation is not a part of the leather supply chain, though it very often is, the amount of land that you'd need to produce leather as compared to a bio-based alternative to it is so immense and it is tied to species endangerment and general biodiversity destruction. There's also the use of chemistry. 90% of leather is still tanned with chromium. There's a huge amount of pollution involved with that. There's environmental racism and human health impacts involved with that. And there's also the idea that slaughterhouse workers are really paid badly to do work that no one wants to do, that is physically harmful, that is mentally harmful. There's so many issues that Mm. we unpack in these reports. It's just immense. I want to come back to your book in the chapter called Veganism Can Help Humans Directly. Mm. You make another link that I think we don't tend to hear too much about. Intensive farming and the story of globalization and exploitation in animal agriculture is racist to you, right? Nobody wants to work in a slaughterhouse. No one dreams of killing for a living when they grow up, you write. If we think about this for a moment, it's perhaps not surprising that vulnerable, marginalized individuals are made to do this dirty work for the rest of us. Mm. So across the world, like really in every country, Australia, the US, the UK, everywhere, people who are black, people who are brown, migrants, refugees, people of low income, people with less access to education are the people who work in slaughterhouses. And it isn't. It's not surprising because people who have privilege do not work in places that everyone can't even better consider or look at. And the impact of this work is so immense. There's a huge amount of injuries. You can talk about all of that stuff, but there's also the mental health impact. Perpetration-induced traumatic stress is something that is commonly dealt with by slaughterhouse workers the same way it is with soldiers who go to war and kill people. It is essentially the same as PTSD. It has all of the same symptoms, but the difference is that it's not about someone inflicting trauma on you. It's about you inflicting trauma on someone else, like a cow or a sheep, and then that trauma kind of gives you whiplash. You get it back yourself. And, you know, think if you went to work every day and you just killed and you killed and you killed, it's going to have a mental impact on you. I met a slaughterhouse worker once and he told me that he went to bed every night and he had nightmares where he could just hear these animals screaming. And it's not something that you wish for for anyone. And it's something that I don't want to pay someone else to do for me. You make the point that there's not transparency or sufficient transparency in the leather supply chain. Two questions on that. One is, well, first of all, don't we think the leather working group, which is like a trusted stamp that you might look out for when you're buying luxury leather, are they not doing good work around ensuring that we do have visibility on this stuff? Frankly, no. The leather working group only addresses impacts in the tannery. So there is nothing about slaughterhouses. There is nothing about the farm level. So for people, animals and planet, that's the majority of the supply chain that is not addressed. And even within tanneries, it's not a proper social audit. You can get the gold standard leather working group certification and not be paying living wages. Okay, thank you. Interesting. We'll share links to all of this. Can you tell us a bit more about what that supply chain might look like? Bearing in mind that could be all around the world and fragmented, but I'm thinking about some of the stuff that people don't know about. And if you look at the pictures, it's quite like, for example, if you're new to this, you might have this idea of bucolic splendor, the cow grazing in the green fields. Mm-hmm. And then you probably know that tannery work's going to be chemical heavy and a bit disgusting, but then you've got your handbag, woohoo. But in between there are all these other stages that we don't see, 
I want to talk about feedlots. Mm. And then you you mentioned some things I'd never heard of, background of farms, direct farms, birthing farms. So there's lots of different parts to the supply chain. Just mm. tell us a bit about what that looks like. So a feedlot is a version of factory farming for animals that would normally be grazing. So they're kept in barren, cleared land, and they're fed grain from troughs. And so, you know, 80% of soy from the Amazon goes to feedlots and factory farms like that. And there are welfare issues with that. There's runoff and eutrophication that comes as a result of all the manure there. And that's actually viewed kind of as the alternative to deforestation for leather, unless we shrink the industry. I would refer listeners and we'll share a link to the episode we did with Philip Limbury from Compassion and World Farming, where we talk about feedlots. It's Mm. actually disgusting. Once you've seen those pictures, you will be absolutely ropeable. It's it's just not right. It's incredibly cruel. You've got these animals in very small concrete floor, pens, barns. And recently in Texas, we're recording this just after a massive barn fire happened that killed 18,000 head of cattle. Mm. I mean, why are there 18,000 cattle in a barn anyway? Mm. Well, that's the cost of viewing animals as commodities and the scale at which we do so. To go back to your note on supply chains and how murky they are, the you mentioned background farms, birthing farms, or that kind of thing. That's something Textile Exchange talks about as well. And it's why we're so unable to see, you know, 58% of the 250 biggest fashion brands, if you look at Fashion Revolution's Transparency Index, they have an animal welfare policy, but only 12% of those brands are able to tell you where their raw materials are sourced from. So then those policies are totally toothless. They can't actually do anything. And so this is a real problem across every part of the fashion industry. We know that transparency is a huge problem because without it, you can't make change. But in terms of cattle and leather, it's a huge problem. People don't know that made in Italy labels on leather might mean that just the finishing part of tanneries are completed in Italy. We might be having other parts of the tannery process in another country, animals slaughtered somewhere else, animals raised somewhere else. There's very little understanding of what's really going on in leather. The other thing I wanted to pick up was the environmental impact. So you've shared some stats there and we'll share the report link so people can read it in depth. But I was saying to you, Emma, before that part of me takes issue with some of these stats because of the question around what our methodology is versus synthetics, for example, and leather. Are we? Are you taking into account end of life? Yeah. Because what about microplastics? And yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah, a really good question. It'd be worth noting that collective fashion justice, our view is that just as we need to move beyond animal-derived materials, we have to move beyond the use of fossil fuels for materials as well. The data that I referred to before where I compared synthetics and leather and their climate impact, that's from Leather Panel, and they actually use cradle-to-gate impact for leather. They look at that and then they compare it with the whole of life impacts for synthetics. So that's actually not an even comparison, but that's fine. So they assume that the synthetic leather is incinerated at the end of life. And so those emissions are involved as well. And even with that unequal comparison, synthetics are seven times less climate impactful. Really? Yeah. And so We need to be moving to bio-based alternatives, recycled alternatives, absolutely. But the impact is really significant. We know also that I think the biggest thing for me, as well as the climate aspect that I've talked about, is half of habitable land 
is agricultural land and 77% of that is used for animal agriculture, grazing but also feed that is going to those animals. That means that if we had a global shift to a plant-based system that had bio-based materials, recycled materials, we could use 75% less land for agriculture and that could save 3 billion hectares worth of land. And the crazy part for me is we talk about like regenerative agriculture and some people think regenerative leather or wool is an answer, but the regeneration that I'm really interested in is if we made that land shift, those 3 billion hectares that could be rewilded, in doing that, we could sequester 99 to 163% of our carbon budget to 1.5 degrees. So we could really regenerate land and help to solve the climate crisis in making this shift while also shifting beyond fossil fuels, which we have to do. So why do you think that we haven't made that transition? Leather is still growing every year. I know there's more interest in alternative materials, but the uptake hasn't been there yet, right? Yeah. I mean, we could ask the same question, why 69% of materials synthetic. Why do we still have so much polyester? We're not very good at changing. I think we need a little bit more time. And I think a lot of that is because there's a huge battle of misinformation. And just as big oil has very good lobbying skills, so does big ag, and they actually work together a lot of the time. So we have to combat that. And that's that's mm. taking time. Would you be happy with incremental change? This is a personal question. Mm. Do you really think that people can stop eating meat tomorrow or within your lifetime? And I pulled out a stat, which is Americans alone eat Mm. 50 billion burgers, meat burgers. By the way, the meat lobby has tried to stop vegetarian burgers using the word burger. But anyway, 50 (laughs) billion burgers, beef burgers a year. So we're not going to switch off meat consumption tomorrow or leather production. Would Emma be happy with less leather and less meat or yeah? do you feel like we need to be a lot more radical than that? I mean, I'm going to take what I can get for sure, but what's our blue sky vision? And Angela Davis, quoting her again, it just keeps happening. She says something like, we have to do the work, even when we don't see a glimmer of hope on the horizon, that it's actually going to be possible. And I think that that's really true across climate action, across how we talk about people and labour. Like, are we going to have living wages across fashion in 10 years? Probably not. But it doesn't mean that that goal is not worthy and not something that we work towards anyway. And I think it's the same for our use and exploitation of animals. Um you would like to see the fashion industry reduce leather use by, oh, this is what you've stated, 50% by 2027 and fully phasing out leather no later than 2035. Given what we've just said, do you think we could do it? And what would it take? What what do we need to do to move that way? So like I said, that's big blue sky vision and it is urgent action, which we have to take urgent action, radical action, is what we need in a climate crisis. It's what we need in a global ethical crisis as well, frankly. Those numbers are based on a few things. It's based on estimates of when broad market disruption for bio-based alternatives is going to happen. It also is based on data around the decline of animal production because of all of these different factors we have, including economic factors where unsustainable production becomes economically unsustainable. And it also looks at the fact that we need to shrink the size of the fashion industry in general. Like I don't want to replace all of the current leather 
with an alternative to leather because it's too much stuff generally. So it looks at all of that. And with that in mind, it's totally possible for a lot of brands. If you're a brand that is like exclusively making money from leather, we know in the report, it's probably going to be harder for you. But so then you have a responsibility to look and decide what is possible for you. And to we need to push ourselves. It's not a time to sit around and um and ah, we need to take action now. People say, I just love my leather boots. And that's fine. But there are a huge amount of things that we can enjoy instead. There are alternatives. There's a growing amount of alternatives. We should find joy in what we already have in our wardrobes. We should find joy in the huge diverse array of plants that we can eat. And I think also whatever comfort you get from consuming animals in whatever way, I think you find more comfort in actually living in alignment with the values that we hold. There's always going to be a bit of discomfort in not doing that. So if we decide what we accept, like if you can't go and kill a cow yourself, should you be wearing them? Should you be eating them? I think that's kind of the question we ask. I know we've run out of time, but I do just want to ask you this, Emma. Yes. It is It is my view that, a firmly held view, that not all farmers are cruel. I've met many extremely dedicated farmers who care deeply for their animals. Now, you might disagree with that, but that's okay. We're allowed to have a debate. What would you say to that? Because I think it's difficult to characterize the whole, you may call the system cruel, but I think... I just don't think it's the case that farmers are like, they don't care about their animals and that brutality is deeply embedded in the way that farmers carry on. What would you say to farmers who are listening? I don't think that farmers are bad people and I equally don't think that slaughterhouse workers are bad people. I think that they are a part of a system just as much as the people who fund that system, who buy the products that come out of it. I think that in order to be a farmer who raises animals for the purpose of profit and production and that ultimately sends them to a slaughterhouse. You know, even the wool industry, even though wool doesn't come directly from slaughter, it exists within a supply chain that ultimately kills sheep. I think to do that, you do have to view animals to a degree as a commodity. I've spoken to farmers who have said that they've had to turn their love of animals off a little bit. You know, you can have it sometimes, but not on the day that the truck's coming to pick them up. And there's this beautiful film called 73 Cows. It's like 12 minutes. It's not graphic. It's about Jay Wilde and his decision to not send cows to slaughter anymore. And he refers to it as soul destroying because he does love animals. And I think a lot of farmers do feel that. And so they have something in them that is very troubling to them. And I think that's when we need the option for a just just transition for those people. The last report in our Leathera series is about a just transition beyond leather. And this is true for wool. It's true for whatever production system using animals. The same way that miners that work in fossil fuel industries shouldn't just be left. We need to bring them with us in this kind of new system that is beyond fossil fuels. It's true for slaughterhouse workers. It's true for people that are raising animals. We can be looking at, for people who don't want to do that anymore, what does ecotourism look like as an alternative if we're rewilding all of this land? How can people who are currently rearing animals and growing crops just be growing crops and doing that in a really sustainable way? There's a lot of ways that we can be using the subsidies that currently fund cruelty and destruction and use them to create this better world that all of us are a part of. And, you know, there are farmers who are more cruel and there are farmers who do their best. 
And there's no question of that. My view is that if we can build a system where no one needs to be killed and where you never have to like turn off any part of yourself that cares for another individual, why would we not want to work towards that system? We tell ourselves in countries like Australia and the UK, where Mm. we're both from, Mm. that the long, rich history of our farming past is so central to our cultural story as nations that without it we would be lost. Would we have no cows in the fields, no sheep on the hills? And what? how would that let us define ourselves? I think a lot of things helped to build our current systems that we wouldn't accept today. If we look at Australia, there shouldn't be cattle or sheep here. The land is not built for it. As soon as they came, they eradicated native yams. They eradicated the foods that Indigenous people were eating. No, for Australia, absolutely no. Are you basically saying sit with the discomfort because actually your story is only one thread and you it's a short thread, actually, if you look back? Yeah, like Australia as a colonial project is not an old country. Britain is, you know, old, but plenty of terrible things happened within it. I think that the things that we like about animal agriculture are when we feel a connection to land and when we feel as though we are a part of this system with other animals. And I think that there are ways to hold those values in a way that is actually much less complicated and that's much nicer. Emma, this is so interesting. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Because I love you, because I love you.